Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Today, we have Martinsville to recap, see what I did there. Richmond to preview, plus we got Stefan Parsons on with us as a star of the show. You see from the episode title, great interview coming up with Stefan. But before that, we're not paying homage to somebody, but more so something. Papa Siegel has more this week in the Wayback segment. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 103. Davey was right when he said the next few weeks are going to be tough. So I'm digging deep to remember both a man as well as a machine. Today's honorable mention goes to Richard Brickhouse the early NASCAR campaigner of the 03 car, who's the answer to the NASCAR trivia question of who's the first person to win the first NASCAR race at Talladega. That was in 1969 at the inaugural Talladega 500. Most of the big stars at the time boycotted the race because they thought the tires wouldn't stand up to the high speeds and the steep banking. So, Brickhouse beat a watered-down field for the win. But the focus of today's segment is not on a man, but a superior racing machine. We all have our own favorite car we'd want to own if money wasn't an obstacle. For me, that would be the 1964 Ford GT prototype, chassis number 103. If you've watched Ford vs. Ferrari, you know the car I'm talking about that low-to-the-ground, sleek blue hot rod with the white circle numbering on the side and the hood, the brainchild of Carroll Shelby. Chassis GT103 was completed in June of 1964. It was the third Ford GT prototype built and the oldest known survivor. The car was raced with little success during the second half of the season before it was sent along with his sister car, to Shelby American for development. The car was improved, and the path laid to Ford regaining prominence in the sports car world. Ken Miles and Lloyd Ruby drove the GT103 to victory in the 1965 Daytona 2000-kilometer race. Later that year, it also finished second at Sebring and third at Monza. The car laid the foundation for Shelby's development of the GT40 that ultimately beat Ferrari at Le Mans in 1966. Hey, Duve, you and your mom are always complaining that it's hard to shop for me when it's time to get me a present. I'll take one of those, please. Yeah, right. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think that Mom and I are going to be able to get you that car. It's... uh little bit out of our price range, but maybe if we want to get a sponsor, hop on board, that could uh, possibly work. So if you're listening, you want to help me buy my dad a historic race car, hit me up. Let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned... 
from a reggaeton to a res recap, the Blue Emu 500 at Martinsville Speedway. Here's how it went down. Denny Hamlin and Ryan Blaney are the class of the field, right? The 11 leads over half the race. The 12 has a better long run car, passes the 11, wins the first two stages. Buddy gets a penalty on the money stop for running over the air hose. Chances at a win go out the window. Lo and behold, who's standing by in third place? Not the fastest car all day long, but the fastest when it counted. Martin Truex Jr. He's in it the whole day. He passes Denny Hamlin with about 15 laps to go. And he wins again at Martinsville. Three of the last four races at the paperclip have been won by the driver of the 19. Two with James Small. One with Cole Pern, who is now out of the sport and owning a ski lodge. And get this. He's a beast on short tracks now. He was 0 for 80 in his entire career, and now he's 5 for his last 11. I'm no mathematician, but that's pretty damn close to 50%. Not too bad of a winning percentage for Martin Truex Jr. on short tracks. Here he was after his second win of the season becomes the first repeat winner of 2021. Martin Truex Jr. showed once again why it is Martinsville. Ha <laughs> ha. Interesting how it all played out there. You know, I thought uh, throughout the day we were, you know, third to fifth place car in there. And then at one point we, you know, middle of the race, we got off a little bit and was probably sixth or seventh place car. So it was kind of a weird day, but, you know, just proud of the guys for working hard on it. You know, we, um, they did a great job. And, uh, you know, that last pit stop, we were able to get us the lead and couldn't quite hold off the 11 on that restart. He was really fast firing off and, um, you know, just try to stay with him and take care of my car. I knew there was enough laps left that, uh, you know, tire wear in, in the long run was going to come into play. And, you know, he started getting tight. My car was getting better and better. And, uh, you know, we were able to take advantage of it. So really happy. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, our car really turned on when the lights went down. And um, it's always good when a plan comes together and it works out the way you hoped it would. And now we're heading to a place where he swept the races in 2019 and finished second in the one race there last year. Richmond Raceway. So I don't think you're going to see Martin Truex Jr. fall out of the top of the field anytime soon. That's for sure. James Small, his crew chief, he's an Aussie and he's a hell of an interview. He loves to curse because he is from down under, of course. I asked him about the race and whether he's actually going to get a grandfather clock now that he has two under his belt. And his response was pretty classic. Yeah, James, you guys have won at arguably two, the two most important tracks of the year with Martinsville and Phoenix being the last two races of the year. Did you put an extra point of emphasis at those two tracks going into the year or did this kind of just happen by chance that you guys were really good when it, when it counted? Yeah, not really. We probably put, you know, a little bit less emphasis on this track, to be honest. We've been so good here and it's just a, you know, a small refinement of the package every time we come back. We, we pinpoint things that we probably need to do a little bit better last time. And uh, just small tweaks because it's so hard with my practice. You don't want to, you know, especially a track like this, which not very aero sensitive. It's, you know, all mechanical related. It's like you can't afford to go out on a, you know, out on some tangent on some philosophy or theory or whatever. Like you just got to stick with what's worked and, and refine that. And I feel like that's why, you know, a lot of it, it's, it's the same guys that are running good here all the time. It's the 9, the 12, the 11, you know, 22s there, like all, all those guys. And, we all obviously have something that our drivers, you know, like and, um, and it responds well and we just keep bringing similar stuff back. So, no, it's just we put far more effort into the tracks we sucked at. So uh, hopefully we get better at them. 
So Martin's got three clocks now. He's got two with you. Is there any chance that he would give you one or is, are you going to have to earn one yourself? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't want one. They, they don't really, you know, they don't really fit in my small apartment. So, and if I ever decide to go back to Australia one day, that's going to be a nightmare. So, you know, I'll, I'll just keep the memories. <laughs> cool. Thank you, James. <laughs> oh, I love James Small. James Davison, too. I love listening to him on the radio just because he's Australian and he uh, he's not afraid to call it like he sees it, which he did this past weekend with Cody Ware, his teammate and his team owner's son. But uh, that was another story for another day. Chase Elliott came home in second place, so his last two Martinsville finishes have been P1 and P2. Not too shabby there. Denny came home in third. William Byron, a top five in fourth place. Actually heard Truex say on an interview earlier this week that was pre-Martinsville that he would put the 24 of William Byron in his championship four right now, which is uh, pretty interesting. Kyle Larson rounded out the top five, so three of four Hendrick cars finishing inside the top five. Harvick got a top 10 finish after almost falling off the lead lap. Stuart Haas is just not too hot at the moment. Tyler Reddick and Christopher Bell also got top 10 finishes. Solid runs for them. It was a really big wreck on the backstretch in the final stage, which took a lot of competitors out. Alex Bowman was involved, Ryan Priest, Matt Benedetto, I believe, Michael McDowell, Daniel Suarez was on fire and threw some water at Willie B. Talked about that in my TikTok. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, but it was a pretty solid race, I would say. But somebody who stole the weekend headlines, it was not Martin Truex Jr., it was not Mother Nature, although kind of, because this race, instead of being on Saturday night, was on Sunday afternoon because it was postponed. Josh Berry was the big story of the weekend, though. For me, you guys know by now, he got the Xfinity Series win in the Cookout 250. This is absolutely huge for late model drivers, everybody that's running on local short tracks around the country. This is big. It's a huge deal. We know what this was coming in. Josh Berry lands the number eight Xfinity Series ride at Junior Motorsports in a limited schedule, wins the Advance Auto Parts Weekly Series Championship last year for Dale Jr. Junior Motorsports in their late model program. Dale Jr. goes on Series XM, surprises Josh with this news. It's crazy. It's amazing. A short tracker finally getting his opportunity at the big time. And the season to date has not been great. It hasn't been bad by any means, but it's just been okay. And Josh actually was just on a Zoom with the media, and he told me, look, like it was kind of a moving target in terms of what we wanted to accomplish and what success was going to be for us. But he knew, he knew going into this track at Martinsville, where the last time he was there, he dominated and led every single lap of the Valley Star Credit Union 300 late model stock Super Bowl race. And he knew this was going to be his one chance to really put it to him and possibly get a victory. And God damn it, he did it. How about that, Josh Berry, an Xfinity Series winner? How about his thoughts on reaching somewhere he never thought would be possible at some points in his life? Victory lane in a NASCAR National Series event. He is an Xfinity Series winner. I mean, it's it's unbelievable, man. It really is. Um, I think you know me well, um, well as anybody. You've seen me. You've seen my ups and downs throughout my career. And, um, you know, coming to a place like this, you feel more confident in yourself because you've been here. You know, I've been here. I mean, look at the opportunities that are what we've had this year. Um, I haven't seen any of these places or most, I mean, maybe one or two, but 
so I definitely felt more comfortable about here. I felt more comfortable about what I do as a driver coming to a place like this, but man, it's just still so unknown. So, I mean, we don't have practice. We don't, um, you know, and we've had some issues this year, Ben. Well, I mean, I've made mistakes, um, you know, on restarts and pit road and things like that. And, uh, you know, we've made mistakes as a team. So as confident as you want to feel coming to a place like this, you still don't feel confident. Um, and, you know, even like I said, we fired off Friday, led some laps. I mean, it was great to kind of go home. And, and I do think that helped me kind of go home and, and think about some things, talk to Taylor. I talked to Dale uh, along with some other guy, other people and talked about what I felt going forward. But, but then you're in a totally different day today. Um, now it's, you know, the other night it was damp and cool and day it's that hot, sun, sunny and tracks rubbered up and stuff like I'm used to. So, uh, I don't know. I'm just, it's really going to take a while to soak this in, but. Um, you know, I think it, you look at me, I think a lot of people expected me to good, be good here. And I was, so that means a lot. His owner is one of his best friends too. And Dale Earnhardt Jr. And he absolutely glowed with admiration and happiness for the win, not just for the team, but for Josh hear a bit of it for yourself here. It was really, really an emotional response from junior. He had calmed down by this point, but he recalled in the moments after why he cried more than he ever had in racing. Yeah, you heard that right. When you're an owner, you're just seeing it from from so high above, and um, you're looking at it a lot more big picture. And and I can see the whole career. I can see Josh's whole career in front of me and how we got to this moment. And so there's a lot more emotion involved. Whereas when you're a driver, you're just up and down week to week you're you're you know you win you turn around now you got another race to run and and it's just you're in and out of that you know that that emotion of of success and failure but as an owner you look at it from you know in a big chunk of time not not day to day um the wins are great but but the success of and stability of the company over a long term is what's really the key thing but so would you know it's different. It feels so different, but there's so much pride. I've never cried like I cried today <laughs> over, over racing anything I ever did or anything my dad did. I don't know why that brought that emotion out of me because it's, I've never experienced that before, but um, I just wanted this so bad for Josh, maybe as bad as he's wanted it. Uh, we just, you know, there's, Kelly feels the same way. LW, um, my mom and Willie and everybody that's had a big role in Josh's career over the last decade or more has wanted this opportunity for him because we know he can do it. We know that he belongs in the Xfinity series and we know that he's got the ability to, to, to win and succeed at that level and move on up to the cup level someday. Just he, he doesn't have that financial support that he needs and, and we're still working real hard to try to secure that for him. And hopefully things like this make a difference. That's a really telling soundbite from Junior there, and he, he made himself vulnerable there. So I think on behalf of everybody, all the fans, media, we thank him for that. I also thought it was interesting that Josh said to Matt Weaver, who knows him pretty much better than anybody covering all the local short track racing that Matt does, Josh was scared that he would not win a race. You don't often hear race car drivers admit that they're scared of failing, but that's essentially what he did. And Matt also brought up that Josh runs the Junior Motorsports late model program and he's helped groom so much young talent. Anthony Alfredo, Sam Mayer, William Byron, to name a few that are in the NASCAR National Series right now. Not to mention a ton of other guys that are still now working their way up through the local short track ranks. 
I really am trying to convey to you guys, but I don't think I can. It is a huge, huge deal, this win for Josh. Matt Weaver wrote a really good story that has some good perspective on it and what it could mean for local short trackers around the country. Please go give that a read. But overall, Josh Berry stole this weekend. He absolutely deserves this win. You hear a lot of people say that sometimes, but for all the work that this dude's put in behind the scenes, late nights, early mornings, blood, sweat, and tears, literally for all three of those things, could not be happier for the dude. I, I interacted with him on a limited basis when he made a K&M Pro Series East start for Visconti Motorsports at New Hampshire. Couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been more accommodating. One of the nice dudes in the garage and finally gets a shot and he capitalizes on it. Happy as hell for him. Interview time. Let's talk to Stefan Parsons, driver of the 99 car in the Xfinity Series for BJ McLeod Motorsports, running a limited schedule this year. But you guys may recognize that last name, Parsons. He's Phil Parsons' son, former Cup Series owner and Cup Series winner, and he's Benny Parsons' nephew. Pretty cool to have an uncle that's a NASCAR Hall of Famer, isn't it? We talked about that, his influence from his family, also influence from some other drivers and crew chiefs in the garage, most notably Carl Edwards. Found that perspective interesting. Also, some other fun stuff we talked about. He's best friends with William Byron, how that friendship came to be. His love of golf, his love of the Red Wings, who just made a trade with my beloved Capitals. How he got started in racing relatively late compared to other drivers, and so, so much more. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the man, the myth, the legend. He has unbelievable hair, which you'll hear and see if you're watching on Twitter or YouTube, Stefan Parsons. Pleasure to welcome on to Victory Lane this week, driver of the 99 for BJ McLeod Motorsports in the Xfinity Series this year. It's Stefan Parsons, the man with the hair that everybody wishes they had. Uh, welcome in, Stefan. Hope your week's going well. You're coming off of a top 20 at Martinsville. Back-to-back top 20s of the season. Got to be feeling pretty good about yourself right now, I bet. Yeah, you know, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, you know, it's been a, it's been definitely an up-and-down season, or up-and-down up start to the season. Uh, you know, starting off at Daytona with the 13th and then going to going to Homestead in Vegas and having a little bit of issues. But uh, the last couple of weeks, or at least the last two races that I've done, Phoenix and Martinsville, we've mm-hmm. definitely kind of got our ducks in a row and uh, worked hard at the shop to kind of prepare ourselves and get ourselves in a better spot to execute. And uh, yeah, that's what we did this past weekend. So it was good. So I know you're running a limited schedule this year with BJ McLeod Motorsports. Do we know how many races officially? Is it still in flux? Are we keeping that number private? What's going on there? It's still in flux. Um, We're always working to try and and bring on more partners and and get more races and get to the racetrack more. Uh, So it's definitely a a work in progress. Um, My next race will be Charlotte. So I've got a little bit, got a couple of weeks off, gotcha. but, um, yeah, so that's, that's the plan right now. Hopefully, um, in the next couple of months, we can announce some more stuff and, and start moving towards a bigger schedule. Yeah. I mean, you've run really well in the races that you've been in the car so far this year. So hopefully the best is yet to come for you in the 99. I know you started back with BJ McLeod though in 2019. And I think if I read correctly, you actually did some behind the scenes work, traveling with the team, working on the cars in the shop and at the racetrack as well before you actually got in the driver's seat. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, 2019, we, uh, in about, it's probably April or May, 
uh, knew that we were going to run some races or I was going to run some races for, for BJ and I was still in college at the time. So during, um, obviously during the semester, I was obviously going to class Monday through Thursday. Um, but then that summer I was going to the racetrack with BJ every weekend, um, just helping out, working, doing whatever I could to, to, uh, to help and be there, um, and, and, and work hard. And it, it worked out well. I actually got to, uh, make my surprise Xfinity debut at Daytona, um, because I was there because I was, I was there working on the weekend and, and something happened and I was able to make my debut, but wow. yeah, so I've been, I've gotten really, really close with everybody at BJ McLeod's, um, we've got a, I feel like we've got a really good team that we've built. And, uh, I think the results of that are, are definitely showing this year. You know, we've, we've, we've ran solid. We've had speed everywhere we go, even, if, even if we've had trouble. So, uh, yeah, I'm super thankful to be part of the BJ MM team. It's a hell of a debut. Get thrown into the seat at Daytona when you went into the weekend, not even thinking that you're going to be in the seat. Take me back there. Like, when did you realize that you were actually going to be in the seat? making your debut at the world center of racing. How did that whole situation pan out? Cause I feel like that had to be crazy. Yeah. So we, we had been back then that was obviously before COVID. So it was right. a full schedule. So we actually um, were there on, I believe it was Thursday, just going through tech. So we spent the whole day going through tech, doing the super speedway techs a little bit different. Uh, so spent the whole day doing that. It's like 95 degrees. It's Florida heat humid muggy like it was just absolutely fantastic and um (laughs) so we get to like the end of the day and bj was like bj said um cody ware who was supposed to drive it said he's not going to be able to drive it this weekend i was like well who's going to drive it and he was like well i would let you drive it if you were approved but i don't i don't know if you're approved i said i hold that thought and i ran over to the nascar trailer uh talked to wayne Otten, brett bodine got approved and uh and it was off we then i came back told bj i was approved I said all right I said, I said you're gonna do it. you're gonna do it I said all right here we go so the approval process when when push comes to shove it's just running over to the nascar hauler saying we're in a pickle here let me drive the car i'm not gonna make a fool out of you and it works yeah i mean usually it's, it's <laughs> definitely a lot more formal than that but that was a special circumstance um so i i was gonna have a hard time taking no for an answer at that point because at that point you'd already been on the road with them and in the shop working on the cars and you're paying your dues so to speak before you get the shot to get in the race car i mean anybody Mm -hmm. in their right mind in your position would do everything they could drop everything at a moment's notice to have that opportunity at Daytona of all places. I mean, when you made your first laps, you're probably saying to yourself, well, didn't expect this weekend to go this way, but I ain't complaining. I'm on the high banks of Daytona drafting with the Xfinity series guys. Nuts, man. Wow. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I don't, I I feel like, um, even if I would have been scheduled to run that race, I'm, I mean, I would have been approved just because I've ran, I'd ran mile and a half in trucks and ran, actually ran the architect at Daytona earlier that year. So I wasn't really concerned about, um, I figured I, I should be approved at least, but yeah, definitely yeah. had to get that confirmation yeah. from NASCAR. Man, 
That's a crazy story. I didn't know that. The, the more you know, right? God, we, glad we got yeah. that out of the way. Um, I want to dive deeper into that for a second, though, because you know a lot of drivers nowadays, especially uh, the ones with top tier teams, we know it's a pay to play sport in some respects, right? You know, drivers come in either minimal experience or not a whole lot of experience, just drive the car, don't really go to the shop that much anymore, whether it's because of COVID or even before COVID, just don't have the time or don't really have any interest. Um, but you made it a point to do that and to get to know the team and to get to know the cars and to show your face and work hard. Kind of reminds me of Ryan Vargas, one of your competitors in Xfinity, who did the same thing as you kind of. I mean, I know he was doing tire pressures last year, holding the pit sign, doing the nine to five thing that the JD Motorsports guys do. So that was a conscious decision for you. Like that was important for you to put yourself out there in that respect and not just be race car driver Stefan you wanted to be a part of the team and build something before you got to where you wanted to go which is in the driver's seat yeah definitely and I'm I'm thankful that um the way I grew up racing late models and stuff I had to work on my own stuff I didn't have a choice um so that kind of instilled in me that work ethic I guess you'd say um so that was for me it wasn't even a question it wasn't even an option like I was there's, I don't, I don't, there's no world or situation. I don't foresee me doing that sort of thing, at least at that point in time. So I, yeah, I just, I don't know how to do it any other way, to be honest with you. I can't, I have a hard time um, just showing up to the racetrack, you know, Monday through Thursday, not really doing anything and showing up to the racetrack. I have a hard time doing that. So yeah. uh, even now, yeah when I'm not racing the, these next couple weekends, I'll still go to the shop. I'll still hang out with the guys, still try and help put ourselves in the best situation for uh, when our next race is, which is or my next race, which is Charlotte. And obviously I'll still try to go to the racetrack as much as I can, but uh, yeah, for sure. On this show, I like to kind of dive into the personalities that are the NASCAR drivers and people in the industry and kind of get their backstory and stuff. And yours, people may recognize your last name, your dad's Phil, your Uncle's Benny. We know that. We'll get into that. But I want to talk about you specifically. So you started at Charlotte and Bandoleros at around 12 or 13 years old. And of all people, Ken Reagan, David Reagan's dad, was pretty influential in you getting started into the sport. Can you connect the dots for people that are saying, how the hell did David Reagan's dad help Phil Parsons' son get involved in the sport? Yeah, so I I have basically been been begging my dad to let me I'd like I, ever since I can remember, I always wanted to race. I always wanted to drive. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't start till I was 12 years old. So, I mean, I guess some would say I had a late start compared yeah. to a lot of people my age and a lot of people that I'm racing against. So I'd always want to do it. I begged him for years and years to let me do it. And um, I had started to go because so my dad stopped racing when I was three. So yep. I never really, really got to see him race. But with him doing TV and everything, I was able to still go to the racetrack and and, and being that, and, um, obviously he knew Ken Reagan very well. I met Ken when I was young and, uh, Ken had a lot to do with, uh, us, or it was 600 racing back then, but us legend cars, he had a lot to do with it more so in Atlanta, but you know, at the racetrack, he'd always right. say, said, you know, we gotta get, we gotta get stuff in the car. Like we gotta get stuff in the car. And finally he somehow convinced, um, my mom to let me do it. And uh, the rest is history. We, we went to right before my 12th birthday, I went and 
went and tested for the first time at Charlotte and then week, and then uh, it's, I've been racing ever since. And your mom was the one that you really had to convince, right? Because your dad's like, yeah, I mean, we'll do it. But your mom was, was the thing that you had to get over that hurdle to finally get behind the wheel. Is that right? Well, she always wanted me to be a dentist, but um, <laughs> it wasn't that she didn't want me to race. She just wanted me to, um, I guess, be ready to start racing as far as like a maturity level and, and, and from yeah. a personal perspective. So it wasn't like she didn't want me to race. She just wanted it to be the right time. And, uh, like it finally, it was the right time. Well, I, I think, uh, I think you can speak to her and say, you know what, even though I'm not a dentist, my teeth are fine. I'm enjoying my life. So I think everything turned out well so far. I, I think she's pretty happy at, right now. I would hope. Yeah. Yeah. So far so good. Right. <laughs> yeah. So far. Um, you mentioned, I mean, compared to, to drivers that come in now, you started relatively late, like 12 years old, 13. That's a lifetime in racing. I mean, Kevin Harvick started when he was like six on a go-kart, right? His son Keelan's now around that age. He's go-karting. Brexton, Kyle Busch's son. Even a lot of guys in Cup now started when they were so, so incredibly young. But there are still some guys that have raced in Cup. Greg Biffle comes to mind. I think he started pretty late as well. Maybe even Dale Jarrett, Hall of Famer as well. You said that you were actually kind of glad that you started relatively late compared to everybody else. Was that partly because of the mature factor, like your mom was was mentioning? What was the reason that you were actually glad that you got a relatively late start compared to other people? Uh, that's definitely part of it. I'm not sure from a maturity level that I would have been in the best spot to start when I was like six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. um, but another part of it too is like you see a lot of these kids who who's, who are who start so early. They're racing super late models by the time they're 14. Arca by the time they're 15 and, and then trying to run truck races when they're 16, you know, I, and I, um, I'm thankful that I got a later start and I didn't make my first truck start until I was, I think 19 or 20. Um, just from a standpoint of, I feel like, you know what I mean? If you're, if you've in a way that a lot of these kids are so young, they almost, sometimes rush through just to get there right when yeah, they're 16 100%. or 17 or 18 you know they're 18 making their truck or xfinity series debut or running full-time now i'm not sure uh again from a maturity level that i would have been ready for that that i would have been able to um handle that per se and even from a racing standpoint i feel like i still had a lot to learn i still learn every time i strap in a race car i learned something new so um, yeah, I guess it's a different perspective, but I'm thankful that I'm 22, um, running Xfinity races now trying to work towards being full time rather than being 17 and, and, and panicking because I'm not running trucks or Xfinity. Yeah. Maturity definitely plays a factor. So mama knows best at the end of the day. I mean, we all know that yeah, for I, sure. speaking of learning, I read somewhere that you actually leaned on uh, a familiar name in NASCAR that isn't in the sport anymore, but one that everybody knows and loves, Carl Edwards. Is that right? How did that relationship come about, and what did he teach you? Did he teach you how to do a backflip? <laughs> no, no, I'm definitely not athletic enough to do a backflip. Um, <laughs> More athletic than but, me. So, yeah, you'd be surprised. <laughs> um, and But so when I was younger – 
they used to do all, they always used to do uh, testing was a lot more frequent back when in the mid two thousands, mid to late two thousands. So when I was younger, um, they would always have test sessions at Charlotte. They would have a Bush series test day, then a cup series test day. And my dad would always, I would get out of school and my dad would always take me. And that was very immersive and a really cool experience of, for me, because getting to really see it, that was really the first time I got to see it up close and, and the sights and the smells and just the whole atmosphere yeah. going around the garage and, and, and yeah. meeting, meeting new people, meeting everybody that my dad knows, talking to people that I've watched on TV. And, um, I remember it was, a, it was a Bush series test and, um, my dad was talking to Carl. I, I couldn't have been, I was probably six or eight years old, somewhere between there. Man, I met Carl and he actually picked me up and sat me in the car in his, in his Bush car. It was the 60 wow. car. And wow. ever since then I had, I've had a pretty good relationship with Carl. He always, you know, would always say hi to me. If he saw me, would go to the, go out of his way to say hi or when I was going to run my first truck race I never ran like Arca or Canaan or anything so I didn't really have that NASCAR experience per se so um I was driving up to Bristol and I uh just gave him a call and I just asked for his advice kind of lean on him um figured you know, we had probably an hour long conversation just about what to expect and, and how to handle it and, and, and stuff like that. So always really appreciated Carl's advice and, uh, and, and friendship. And I know he's doing well now. He's happy what he's doing. Uh, obviously we would love to see him back at the racetrack, but it was, it, it was really cool to be able to lean on um, somebody like him from that I've known since basically my earliest racing memories. That's pretty cool. You, you hear some cool stories about Carl like that, how he was, you know, a young, young guy trying to break into the truck series and he was in the garage handing out his own business card to people and, you know, the work ethic that he had, which made his disappearance, for lack of a better word, from from the sport, all the more puzzling when he retired on a whim. I don't know if he officially used that word, but when he left after Homestead a few years back. Were you as surprised as everybody else or since you had a relationship with him? Like, did you see any inkling of that coming at all? Um, <clears throat> I had heard about it probably a, a month or a couple of weeks before it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, it was definitely shocking. I, I understand why he did it. A, a shock to the whole NASCAR community. Me, I remember when I, heard about it the first time I was definitely shocked and and like you know obviously like Carl a lot was was hoping that he would stay around for a long time but right I know again I think he's he's really happy doing what he's doing now um he's he's him, he, him and his family are are having a good time so yeah it was definitely a shock but um I think I think it was uh it ended up being all for the best yeah, I mean, he just did an interview with Race Hub. Seems like he's doing well. He legitimately sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, which is nuts. Uh, he's doing his thing, which is cool. Do you still keep in contact with him at all now, now that he's has a more mellow life and he's not going 200 miles an hour every week? Do you guys keep in touch? A little bit. I haven't talked to him in a while. It's been a while since I talked to him last. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll text him, like, when he, whenever he got um, – nominated for the hall of fame 
I shoot him a text and, and just said how, how deserving it was and how awesome it was to see that. Um, but yeah, um, I haven't talked to him in a while, but, um, just, he's a really, I know if, if I called him, I would be able to lean on him for anything. So, uh, really grateful for his friendship. Yeah, for sure. Maybe he'll teach you how to do a backflip one, one of these days. I don't know. I mean, if he does, let me know because <laughs> it seems like we're at, we're the same athletic stature. We're, we're not too good about things. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned Carl, obviously your dad, he, you leaned on him a lot too. Anybody else growing up when you started in Bandoleros, made your way to late models before you got into the NASCAR National Series ranks? Anybody else that, that you leaned on for advice or helped you through the process besides those two guys? Yeah, definitely. So um, I was lucky enough to – my dad had a cup team, and so we had Michael McDowell and Josh Wise driving for him. And I was I definitely was able to lean on them a little bit. Um just kind of advice and, and, and little things here and there as far as being a race car driver and, and trying to make it and trying to progress kind of how they did it and kind of that path. But honestly, somebody who's even a big influence on me now to this day is, is Gene Need, who was my dad's Bush series crew chief in the late nineties. He was the crew chief for, uh, for his cup team in the early two thousands, you know, he crew chief Matthew Benedetto for a little bit. He's a, he's a Stuart Friesen's now, um, but he's somebody that I've always, him and my dad have a really close relationship and in, in turn, he's known me since literally the day I was born. So I have a very close relationship with him and I've, even to this day, I lean on him for just for help and advice. Um, he's kind of taught me, he, he would come to some of my races when I were younger and, and say, you know, he's very, he's a very, uh, blunt individual. So he would say, you know, why would you, why did you do that? So that was stupid. Don't do that. And just that kind of uh, that kind of bluntness has even helped me to this day as far as just uh, race craft and, and how to handle things. And even now um, in the, in the, in the sport, managing relationships and, and managing um, kind of, I don't, I still don't think there aren't many people who are better at making more out of less equipment than Gene. So he's kind of helped me with that and the situations I've been in. Um, a little bit more underfunded teams. So I would uh, definitely say uh, Gene Need is somebody that has been pretty integral to my development as a race car driver. Cool. Good perspective. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, you mentioned Josh Wise, Michael McDowell, Dave Blaney drove for your dad's team, Phil Parsons Racing for a while, I think back in starting in 07. Um, but, you know, you were still relatively young when um that operation kind of closed doors and things ended on that front but i'm sure you have some some memories of the race team itself in the 98 before things ended um what do you remember about your dad's race team were you at the track a lot with the car and with the team and and just what do you remember about those times when your dad was owning a, a cup team oh i remember a lot i was uh i really enjoyed it i wish well and knowing having the not i didn't know I'm even close to what I know now about the sport and even, even how to work on race cars, honestly. Um, so I wish I could go back and, 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 and relive that knowing what I know now, the knowledge I have now, but obviously everybody would. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have a lot of memories, you know, I was still in high school. So I would, uh, like during the summer, I would go to a lot of the races and then obviously during the school year, I would go to the close races, but I would leave. Honestly, I would go, I would leave school and either when I couldn't drive, I would have my mom pick me up from school and she would 
take me straight to the shop, drop me out the shop. We stay there till six or seven o'clock at night. Then I'd come over with my dad. And then when I got my license, I would just, I would drive straight to school or straight to the shop. So I have a lot of fond memories of that. It was, uh, it's, it's really cool. Honestly. Um, one of the best memories is, is when we had, uh, the, the Dogecoin community, um, kind of crowdfund and, and crowdsource the sponsorship for Josh and actually put us into the all-star race. Uh, that has always been one of my fondest memories of, uh, of the race team. And it's been really cool recently to uh, have the support of the Dogecoin community. We were, we had Dogecoin on the car at, uh, at Vegas, thanks to spring race, one of my sponsors. And so to kind of tie all that together and to, to remember when I was young and, and how massive the support of the Dogecoin community was, and then to be living it myself, to drive, be actually driving uh, the Dogecoin car has been really cool to come kind of f- full circle uh, for me as a, as a driver and as a, as a race fan, honestly. Yeah, that's, what I, that's the word I was going to use, full circle, right? And you, you were one number off. If BJ let you drive the 98 for one weekend, it would have been like a carbon copy. You could like put the two die casts next to each other, have like a cool picture. That would have been sweet. I'm sure you still will. But that's I was going to ask about the Dogecoin car, obviously, because whenever something some company like that comes into the sport that has the cachet around it, as Dogecoin does. And like you said, they obviously already had exposure to NASCAR. Josh was in the all-star race because of the Reddit community and the, all the Dogecoin supporters. To have that mixed together, not just in general, but with you driving at the helm, that, that must have been amazing because, as you said, like you were at the shop seeing the car living through it with your dad owning the team when that 98 was in the all-star race itself. Um, so as this deal probably came together for you with spring rates, you're probably like, Oh yeah, this is nostalgia all over again. Now, instead of me looking at the car and visiting it, I get to drive the thing and I'm going to have my name above the door with Dogecoin on it. We're sending it to the moon. Yeah, definitely. It's been such a cool experience and you know, we're going to run, we're going to run that car again at Nashville. Love it. So, uh, just, it is even, you know, that was, that race was a month ago, I guess. And my Twitter notifications, Instagram messages, message on Twitter are still oh, yeah. blowing up with support from the Dogecoin community. So, um, it's so cool to see how, how the, the Dogecoin community rallies around basically anybody who's supporting Dogecoin. So yeah. it's awesome. I'm not like a cryptocurrency guy at all. I barely can like handle my own finances. Are you a crypto guy or are you more so just like a Dogecoin guy? I'm learning more about it. Um, definitely more of a Dogecoin guy, but yeah. I've, I'm trying to learn more about it. Obviously, when I was in 2014, when we when we did it with Josh Wise, I was I was still in high school. I didn't even I, I didn't even know what a, what a tax was. So <laughs> I still um, know it's fine. Yeah. So, uh, um, I'm, I'm definitely learning more about it, learning about, uh, more about cryptocurrency as a whole. Um, and, but yeah, I'm, I'm a Dogecoin guy for sure. Yeah. Who isn't? I mean, we, we all are, we, we love those memes. We love the dog, we <laughs> love the paint scheme. It's awesome. Um, so you mentioned your dad, Phil, he stopped racing when you were only three years old. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I would assume you don't really have too many memories of him in the race car. Uh, no, I don't. I, I have very, very, very vague memories of the, the race track, I guess at that time, like mm-hmm. when I was two to three, like I just have glimpses of being in, uh, 
like in the motorhome or in the motorhome lot or just kind of at the racetrack. Um, my, so my dad's last race uh, was Kentucky 2001. And it was actually on my third birthday. So I have a very, very vague memory of like having a little birthday party cake deal in the motorhome lot. Um, but so, so I've got to, I got to see him run. They did that legends deal at Bristol in 2009, 2010. They did it with, I think they did it with uh, Hooters pro cup cars. And then I think they did it with late models one year, but I remember that a little bit. Got That was really, really the only time I've gotten to legitimately see him race. I, uh, when I was running late models, I always try to, to get him to, to, get in my car when we'd be testing Hickory or something like that. He's like, Oh no, I don't want to embarrass you. So I don't know if he was doing that for, <laughs> for my sake. Um, so yeah, not, not many memories. I remember one time when he had his cup car in 2009, they were testing it little rock at Rockingham. And I think he got in made a couple laps, but um, I definitely wish that I would have been old enough to see him in that environment in the late nineties and even the eighties and, and kind of watch how he handled that and watch how he, uh, how he ran the Bush series when it was so competitive back then. Yeah. He was running at the peak of the Bush series back then. I mean, all these races are on YouTube and there's highlights like galore. I mean, I assume you've watched at least some of them and some races that your dad has won and had real good success in when you watch those, or if you've watched those, I feel like that's got to bring a smile to your face and be like, wow, that's my dad. He did that. That's sweet. No, I, I definitely do. We have hundreds of VHS tapes here of <laughs> recorded races from the eighties, nineties. Like I'm not even joking hundreds. Um, and, uh, thankfully my dad had a lot of onboards in like 96, 97, 98. Oh, cool. So I can actually watch some of his, we have actually have tapes of his onboards, his full onboards that I've, hmm. I've watched since I was little. Um, but for me, the crazy thing is, Again, from the time I was six or seven, I was watching those old races. I would, I loved putting those races into VCR and 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 watching them. I mean, it's crazy for me. Like it doesn't even, I still don't even. It doesn't even like register that I'm like if I go back and and watch a Bush race from 1998 or whatever, an onboard from him at Bristol. Like I, I mean, I'm getting to do that same thing. I'm getting to race in that same series. Like it doesn't even it doesn't even register, you know? So again, like you said that your, your word full circle. So, um, it's been really cool. And, and honestly, it's, it's so such a privilege to, to get to be able to do what I do. You know, I'm very lucky, lucky to have great partners like SoCal and spring rates that allow me to race an Xfinity series for BJ. Mm -hmm. Um, but honestly, I, I, I suck at putting it into words because it is such a it's just so awesome to be able to not only not only run the Xfinity series but to run competitively and and to go out there and have good runs um and maybe equipment that um that isn't doesn't doesn't have as many as much resources as a lot of people so and I, he's he kind of did the same thing you know they didn't have a lot of resources back then in the late 90s so um it's just I, again, I am really bad at putting the words, but it is so cool that I to have grown up watching these these races and these old tapes and then to kind of be in that same uh, spot now. No, I can tell it's genuine. Like, I mean, you hear drivers when they thank their sponsors and like, oh, I'm so grateful to be here. And like they they probably are. But 
it's dead. I can tell. Like I'm, I'm looking at you for people that are listening and they can't see him. I, I can see that that it means a lot to Stefan. So I get it. Is is your dad one of those guys that like if you're going to Bristol or you're going to Phoenix or Richmond, whatever? Is he one of those guys that's like, hey, come over, let's uh, let's pop in the VHS from uh, 1989 and show you how to get around this joint? Is he one of those guys? No, not really. He knows. Uh, him and I both know that so much has has changed. Yeah. yeah. Um, with the cars, motor, I mean, everything's completely different than it was back when he raced. But um, the main, the big thing that my dad's able to help me with now is the kind of managing relationships and um, and dealing with, you know, I'm still 22, right? Right? Like I'm dealing with the pressures and, and just how to go about situations the right way, how to how to make the most out of a situation that may not necessarily be the best situation in regards to equipment or, um, or going to a weekend may not have all the, all the tires I'll have all the set of tires. So there's, there's not many people who have more experience than that um, with him no doubt, being a driver and an owner. So uh, he defers to some of my, some of my friends now that I've been fortunate to be pretty close with that, that, also racing NASCAR. Um, but yeah, no, we don't, I always, we, I mean, we'll, we'll go back and watch old tapes. Um, but more as for more of like a nostalgic watch, yeah, not yeah. trying to learn anything yeah. per se. I, I get that for sure. And he's obviously doing some stuff on the broadcasting side now as well with the truck series and Fox sports. He did some of your races too. I think there's a picture that I saw, uh, at Bristol and he was interviewing you on the grid in front of your truck. That that's also kind of a full circle moment. Like, Oh, dad's going to work up there, but he's going to be talking about me down here. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was honestly a really cool experience. Um, that was again, that first, that first truck race I ever ran at Bristol. Um, and he, yeah, that was a cool opportunity. Thankfully we, we made the race and he was able to we were able to do an interview together for uh for race day before the race and i for me like people people always ask me growing up when i was younger in school like what's it like your dad be on tv i'm like you know well, it's cool but i don't know what it's like to not have my dad on tv which yeah. i'm not trying to sound uh pretentious or anything no, but it's like I have, I have a I have a twin sister. People are like, "What's it like to have a twin?" I'm like, "Well, I don't know what it's like to not have a twin." So, um, but to to be able to share that experience with him um, in his profession, you know, and, and what pays his bills and what his job is and what he's done for 20 years in TV, and kind of um, me kicking off hopefully what is a 20 to 30 year career racing that first race was such such a cool experience and such a special moment not even as a race car driver but as a son right that's and standing there next to your father who you've seen um you know pour his life and and blood sweat and tears into a sport and uh and and to be able to share that moment was so so special for uh for our family honestly um not even again as a race car driver but as as a son as a father that was a really close and special moment for the both of us yeah that's one of those pictures that you're gonna you're gonna frame blow up put everywhere in the house it's it's a it's a really really cool moment so i'm glad you got to share that with them i also heard a story about um your dad 
on the Scene Vault podcast back in his driving days. I think when his driving days were maybe coming to a close. And I have no idea if you like, you know, remember this story, have any insight, whatever. Um, but it was about his eyesight. And he had this label attached mm-hmm. to him that he had vision issues with his eyes and that was affecting his driving. And I don't remember if it was when he was with Morgan McClure or if it was another team, but um, he had that label attached to him and, and he, and I think your mom helped as well. Like they worked really hard to try to detach that stigma to him because it wasn't true. Uh, Do you have any like insight or perspective on that and how that like affected your dad and his driving career towards the end? Yeah. So that was, that was before I was born. That was in 1990. Um, Him and I, I've talked about it on, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough subject to talk about because it was, it was effectively uh, the end of his cup series career when that, when all that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking with him about it, um, obviously now we, uh, as, as drivers um, with not necessarily a lot of family funding, we go through a lot of hardships, a lot of tough times. Um, I've certainly been in situations before or, or ran races and, and got out and been like, well, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to get to run another one. Um, but for him, he had been building his career. Uh, the late eighties were such a, such a good time for him. He won a cup race, had a really good sponsor, a really good ride, um, left the situation, just the U S tobacco family that he'd been in for basically 10 years to go to Morgan McClure. And then all that goes down. And, um, I mean, it was just a really hard time for, mm-hmm. um, I say our family, obviously I wasn't alive, but it was a really hard time for our family because, um, they didn't know what to do next. You know, him and him and my mom, um, basically worked and, 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 and dug and, and did everything they could to, to get opportunities for him. I mean, they, it was it was a really hard three years, 91, 92, 93. Um, emotionally, financially, um, I, I know obviously I wasn't there, but I know that was probably the hardest time of, of his life, certainly, and I'm sure my mom's life. Um, and then to kind of flip-flop that, you know, they, they bought a bush car with some of the money they had and tried to run it and ran pretty competitively. And then went to Charlotte in 1994, and uh, they, <clears throat> I think there were like there were like 60 something cars there. You know, what I mean, there were wow. like cars, 20 something cars going home and missing the race. Nuts. And you're talking, you had Dale Earnhardt, Mark, Mark Martin, Rain LaJoy, Steve Grissom. I mean, all these huge names in the Bush Series. And my dad, my mom, basically something they built from the ground up from nothing. Um, with, with their own car went and, and won that race at Charlotte, our home track. And that was kind of the, the rebirth of his career, if you will. And it really led into some good opportunities uh, in the Bush series um, in 94, 95, drove for uh, the 99 car, the Luxair car. And then um, obviously 96, 97, 98, 99, they started their own Bush team and, and ran competitively and ran well. So um, there's, Honestly, I don't, there's nobody better to have to lean on as, uh, as a driver and a father figure, uh, really the ups and downs of the sport. You know, you can be on cloud nine one minute and this, this sport will kick you right into the dirt with no hesitation. So 
Um, been obviously I hate that it happened, but it's really helped me um, kind of manage situations and expectations and, and, and kind of dealing with that reality of the situation I'm in now where, you know, I don't, you know, there could be a situation where I don't, this may be my last race. I don't know. So it's definitely, um, definitely very thankful to have him and my mom, honestly, uh, to lean on in that regard. Yeah. That's, that's really good perspective. Thanks for sharing that. Cause when I heard that story, I was kind of like getting mad. I was like, I hate, it's just not true. Like attaching this label to someone right. when it's not true and that affecting their livelihood, their career financially, emotionally, mentally, all these different things. Like you just don't understand the ripple effects that that has. So I just want to get your perspective on that. So I thank you for sharing that. Let's stick to your family for a little bit yeah. longer. Um, as we mentioned, you know, your uncle Benny, he passed away when I think you were eight years old. Um, he's a hall of famer for obvious reasons, his on track success, his off track success in the broadcast booth. You never were able to see him race as neither was I. Um, but the memories that you have of him in your life before he passed away, I'm sure that for those eight or so years, he was pretty influential in your development when it comes to racing. Maybe not so much since he didn't really start, but there was always that common ground of knowing uncle Benny from being at the racetrack, I assume. Right. And I, and I was pretty young. Um, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't old enough to fully grasp, um, this is maybe what he meant to the sport and what he'd done for the sport and what he was doing in the sport. Um, so, um, but I, I have very fond memories of, of, of him. And, uh, I remember when they were building the, 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 the vineyard up in, uh, up in the mountains. And I, I remember sometimes he would be doing, uh, I think he was doing fast talk on, uh, on the radio at the speedway. And I would, we would, me and my dad would go there and, and I remember I was sitting on his lap. I was talking while he was talking on the radio, just little memories like that. Um, but I definitely wish that, um, that Benny, my other uncle, Steve, um, my dad's father, my grandpa would have been around to see me race. They all, unfortunately passed away, um, before I really started racing. So, uh, I know my dad wishes the same thing that, that they could have been around for uh, when I was racing, but as I've gotten grown older, I certainly, I, you know, I get people come up to me or people on social media and, and people sharing things on social media about either things that Benny did or, or just the way he treated people and, and how he was basically regarded in the sport. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's really cool to, to, to be part of that family legacy, right. And to, um, have that to, uh, look up to and, and just learning how to treat people, learning how to, how to be in the sport, learning how to, you know, handle certain things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, definitely is, is, is awesome to, to see, um, the things that he was able to accomplish and uh and how well respected he was by uh, not only fans but but people within the sport as well yeah yeah really well regarded guy you know people always say oh if you could have dinner with one person in motorsports who would it be i don't know if benny would be number one for me because there's there's some crazy figures in there but he is on my mount rushmore just the stories that he has and the humor that he tells all those stories with, he would definitely be on my Mount Rushmore. And I know he would be insanely proud to see what you're doing now. I'm sure he's smiling down on you right now. So I'm sure that made his react or your guys' reaction to him getting voted into the Hall of Fame, which I don't really think was ever in doubt. 
But once it was finally official, right. I obviously assume that you assume that your family was pretty ecstatic at that result and and getting him in the Hall of Fame, your last name in the Hall of Fame forever. That's irreplaceable, man. That that must have been a, a crazy, crazy time for you guys. Yeah, that was uh, that, that was such a cool moment for our, our entire family. Um, you know, he had been nominated for a couple of years, and, and 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 we were really um, really confident in 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 him getting in eventually. Um, but when he actually did get in, um, that just is the ultimate. That I mean, that's. You know what I mean? That's when, when you're a kid, right. Dreaming of racing in NASCAR and being in NASCAR, like being in the hall of fame is such, you know, it's almost unfathomable yeah, to actually accomplish. So for everything that he had done for the sport as a driver, and even as a, as a broadcaster to see all that, all that work, um, just rewarded, you know what I mean? Rewarded. And obviously he'd been, um, regarded in the industry like i said but to see it it, it actually rewarded being that that literally that top goal that you know i don't you can't top that um so that was such a such a cool moment for our family um and and to be able to even go to the hall of fame now and see his name in there and see his, his exhibit like that's um really means a lot to i know to me to my dad to our to our whole family yeah, that's so cool. I love that. All right, I got a few more things for you, and I'll let you run, Stefan, because I know you got to get going to the sim. Uh, let's hit on some fun things. Uh, I don't know. I mean, college is fun. I mean, working in college is not that fun, but you graduated from UNC Charlotte with a business degree. Business degree is right, right? Yeah, marketing, yeah. Market. Okay, gotcha. So um, in NASCAR, obviously, as you know, I mean, there's not a whole lot of drivers that have college degrees and college educations because – they forego universities for racing. But I assume it was important for you to go to college, get a degree and have that in your back pocket and not even more so like in your back pocket, but have the skills that you developed in those four years at UNCC to take with you into racing because more and more, it's not like it was back when your dad was racing. You got to be your own salesperson. You got to do everything for yourself. So getting your, your marketing degree from UNC Charlotte had to be a big thing for you, even though you're pursuing a racing career full time throughout it all. Yeah, it was, it's definitely big. You know, there was a while when I was younger that I didn't want to go to college and my parents um, will say encouraged me to go to college. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to use the word forced, but encouraged me. Um, but I am so, like you said, I'm so thankful that, that I did go to college and that I got, a, I, I got a degree. Um, and I honestly really, I didn't enjoy homework and all that, obviously, but, um, I enjoyed it and I'm glad I did it. Um, and it, it honestly taught me a lot of, uh, really, um, regardless of the education I got, it taught me a lot of, of, of time and balance. You know what I mean? I would leave, I was racing late models for the most part when I was in college or at least the beginning of college. So I would, uh, I would go work on the late model and then leave there, go to class, leave there, go back to the shop and work and, and just bounce in that schedule and balancing, um, having to work on, on a late model and, and work on the car and then go race on the weekend and, and, and have homework and, and tests that I had to study for like that honestly was a really good experience for me um, to be able to kind of balance both and to be able to um, in a way balance um, kind of racing and other things mm -hmm. um, not racing so 
really thankful that, that I did that. And obviously I learned a lot about marketing, learned about how to represent myself and represent my sponsors and, and help sponsors get the most, uh, the most out of our partner partnerships. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely an experience that I'm thankful for. I was looking back and I saw that you were a Red Wings fan and I was like, he's from North Carolina. Why is he, why is he a Red Wings fan? And then I was like, Oh, your dad's from Detroit, obviously. And mm-hmm. I went to Michigan state for my four years of college. So, but I'm from the DC area. So I'm a Capitals fan, but I got a ton right. of Red Wings friends that are fans. Um, so we have some beef to squash because this trade that, that just happened between our two teams, I don't know how closely you follow the wings or whatever, but, mm-hmm. uh, we just did a trade. You gave us Anthony Mantha. We gave you Jacob Vrana, Richard Ponick, a first and a second round pick. So yeah. I'm like, I mean, Mantha, Mantha actually scored a goal for us last night, but we gave up so right. much to you guys. Like I'm kind of sad about it. Cause I liked Vrana. So please enjoy him. Yeah. He is great. He is young. He's fast. <laughs> Uh, so I just, we needed to talk some hockey here because when I saw your Red Wings fan, I was like, Oh, that's different. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm completely okay with it. Cause honestly, the Red Wings need all the help they can get. Um, obviously it's been a rebuilding year for about five years, five, six years now. So, uh, (laughs) hopefully, hopefully that helps, helps us get, um, better and to not be in last place. So, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. I mean, Larkin and Vrana now you guys are going to be solid, even though you guys still got some work to do to, to say the least. Are you a Detroit sports fan for other yeah. stuff? Cause I think you go to some Hornets games. So I assume you're a Hornets fan and not, not a Pistons mm-hmm. guy for basketball. Yeah, no, I don't really, um, follow. I don't really have that same, uh, I guess like for like the Tigers or the Lions or the Pistons. Yeah. Um, definitely a big Charlotte sports fan. Um, but I've always, uh, I guess in this region, ho- obviously hockey isn't as popular, but mm-hmm. as a kid, uh, our family would go to like checkers games and, uh, I really enjoyed that, have fond memories of that. And then whenever, uh, me and my dad would go up to, uh, Detroit, we would go catch some, some Red Wings games. Then it was at Joe Lewis arena. Yep. yep. So, uh, yeah, I've always been more of a Red Wings fan than I have, uh, I guess a Detroit sports fan. Yeah, I, I was able to see one game at Joe Lewis when I was at school there. Uh, Caps beat the Wings in overtime, and I was that one obnoxious guy like screaming at Joe Lewis. Everybody wanted to kill me. It, it was it was really funny. Yeah. I know you're also uh, a really big golf guy as well, so give me your master's analysis. What do you think of Hideki Matsuyama's win? you think you could beat him on the course? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think I, I like I – like, obviously, I love watching golf. I like playing golf. I don't get to play it as much as, uh, as much as I would like to. Um, but I, what I like about the masters this year is look at, look at, I mean, it just shows how tough it is. Obviously Dustin won last year, but then Dustin Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, all these people missed the cut, just missed the cut. I mean, it just goes to show how difficult it is, you know what I mean? And how, um, one person can can have the course mastered one one year and and miss the cut the next year so um i think that goes to show how difficult it truly is and i definitely could not beat hideki absolutely not i don't think i could beat any single person that that was that was on 
that was playing at the Masters ever. Yeah. Maybe probably not even on yeah. one hole. I don't think I could beat them. No, I, I couldn't either. I mean, I don't play by any means. Like, I went to the driving range Masters week because I wanted to get the vibes in. You know what I mean? But I'm absolutely right. terrible. Like, I'm – it's bad. It's really bad. Do you ever play with, like, Michael Waltrip or Denny or, like, any of those guys that play a lot, like, religiously, Ricky Stenhouse, any of those guys? Yeah, I played with um, – so my dad and Michael play, play a lot together and even Denny too. So I've, I've gotten to play with them a couple times. Um, there's a lot of fun stories that uh, to go on during those. But, um, no, I, go, I golf with, like – me and uh me and william byron golf some mm-hmm. uh custer will golf a couple maybe once once during the week if we both have time yeah um but yeah i i'm not good either if i can break 100 i'm lucky well if i could break 200 i'm, I'm lucky too so you, you got me covered <laughs> by about 100 strokes um you mentioned william i know you and william uh are really really close best friends maybe i would say i don't know how did that friendship come to be yeah so we my first uh, Legends car race, the first time I ran a Legend car at Trout Motor Speedway in the winter heat was, I think, like his first or second race ever, also in a Legend car. And um, we just kind of racing against each other, going to driver's meetings. We kind of just like started talking, hit it off, became friends. And we've been, you know, friends ever since, even as obviously he's progressed much higher than I have. Um, but as we both kind of made our way up the ranks and kind of fought, um, to get better opportunities, uh, yeah, we've, we've always been friends. So how often do people, uh, like look at your hair and they're just like, how do you do it? What, what, what product do you use? Is it a gift? A lot. How, how does this work? Cause I'm looking at it right now and I'm like, I got a receding hairline. I'm 24. I'm like, geez. <laughs> I need that in my life. Yeah, it's getting a little, it's getting a little tall. I need to need to kind of take the 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 hedge tri- uh, hedge trimmers and and cut and knock it down a little bit. Um, basically, what it comes from is I hate the feeling of hair touching my forehead. Mm. Is basically what it comes from. So okay. just put it up. <laughs> it works. You got it going for you. Yeah. All right. Uh, last mm-hmm. question, bring it back to racing here. What are the goals overall for you this season? Like we mentioned at the start, you're coming off back to back top twenties, which is really solid for a team like BJ's and those cars. Cause they're capable of that, but circumstances don't always dictate you finishing top 20 every week. So with the limited races that you have for the rest of the year, hopefully you're going to be adding some more. I know things are in the works. Do you have any specific goals for the year? You personally, um, yeah, I mean, I we I just you know in, in the limited opportunities that I get, I want to go out there and run well and and have good results for uh, not only myself but for the team. You know, um, especially this year, points are very important mm-hmm. because of um, no qualifying and no practice and all that. So points are very important, especially when we're going to go to races that we do qualify. Um, so to go and, and give the team a good day and, and get good points and, and execute and, and help help the team build and get better um, with feedback and stuff like that. Um, And then for me, like just um, kind of maximizing uh, the situation the best I can and not overstepping, not not getting myself into trouble, which I've done uh, once or twice this year. So kind of building on that, getting better about that and, and and getting the most uh, 
the most out of it that we can for myself and for our partners, um, trying to keep, make them happy and, uh, and kind of build our programs to, to grow, uh, for years to come. So a uh, little stuff like that, kind of little stuff that I, I can do as a driver, uh, pit road restarts, positions, passing people, just little intrinsic stuff that, that you can kind of improve on as a driver to, uh, to make the most out of the situation. Gotcha on that. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for your time. This is, this has been awesome. You gave me a lot of it, so I appreciate it. I know it's valuable. Uh, it was great learning a little bit more about you personally, your family, uh, everything that comes along with it, your golf game, of course, um, beating me by hundred strokes, but look forward to seeing you on the track this year and, and for the years to come. I got a feeling that we'll, we'll be hearing a lot more of you for the years to come. So appreciate your time and, uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Enjoyed it. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed that conversation between myself and Mr. Parsons there. Thank you to Juliet Korish of BJ McLeod Motorsports as well for helping coordinate it. And Stefan for taking the time on a busy morning and during a busy week heading into the rest of the season. Appreciate his time. Appreciate everybody as always for listening. Before we hit on some lung nuts of the week, let's talk about the race coming up this weekend. The Toyota Owners 400 at Richmond Raceway. 300 laps. 400 miles, not under the lights on a Saturday night. It's actually during the daytime on Sunday afternoon, which I think is going to be a better show on track for the fans watching in attendance and on television. According to all the drivers that we've talked to, and I've talked to Austin Hill for the Front Stretch podcast, so go check that out after this is over in a few minutes. He says that that's going to put on a better show. There's going to be less grip, which is going to translate to more slipping and sliding around for the drivers and the cars and the trucks. I think it'll be fun. Hopefully, it will pay off. Sunday's cup race at the action track, though, will be on Fox, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Trucks are also in action. The Toyota Owners 250. That'll be Saturday afternoon on Fox Sports 1. As I mentioned, check out that combo with Austin Hill, one of the truck series drivers who has a win prior in his career at Richmond in the K&M Pro Series, so he should be one to watch on Saturday. But as for Sunday, a lot of drivers up front, that you're probably used to seeing. Martin Truex Jr. swept the races there in 2019, finished second there last year. Denny Hamlin, one of his home tracks, has countless wins there, has only finished outside the top five still once this season. He's due for a win. Chase Elliott obviously has a lot of speed coming off a runner-up finish, yet to win this year, defending champion. Kyle Busch, who swept these races back in 2018, which feels like forever ago. Can he get back to his dominant stage and win a race. We'll see. Brad Keselowski is the defending winner. He won the lone race here in 2020. I'll also be watching Kevin Harvick kind of close because he has three career wins at this racetrack, but he hasn't really been running well this season. And we've documented his struggles on this podcast. Everybody else has on their respective outlets as well. We'll see if he can potentially we'll see if he can potentially make Sunday afternoon a better day for him overall. I know he wants it. I'm just not sure if he's gonna get it. Lug Nuts of the Week! Cue that funky music, white boy. Gotta give a shout-out to the NASCAR Wheel and Modified Tour at Martinsville. They were the only race that was not impacted by rain, but Eric Goodale won that race on Thursday night. Dave Sapienza got suspended, and that's uh, that's making some waves, some very polarizing rulings taken by NASCAR there. 
We have some other penalties post-Martinsville in the Cup Series. Cliff Daniels, Johnny Klossmeyer, and Brian Patty were fined 10,000 big ones for one loose lug nut. And Trackhouse Racing loses 10 owner points for an improperly installed ballast. Uh, that was a big pre-race penalty as well. On the Xfinity side, Jeff Mendering, Brandon Jones's crew chief, was fined 5,000 big ones for a loose lug nut. And Brian Graham on the 23-hour motorsports car has been suspended for the next race due to an improperly installed rear axle. Plus, Kurt Butcher, who was listed as the hauler driver for Sam Hunt Racing, he's been indefinitely suspended due to substance abuse violations. So hopefully he's able to get that under control, and we'll see him back at the track soon. Joey Logano is going to honor Mario Andretti with a Darlington throwback. Shell and Penzoil will be on the hood for that. Austin Sindrick, speaking of Team Penske, is going to return to Cup Series competition this weekend at Richmond in the 33 car. Quick Trip has been named the presenting sponsor of the inaugural Cup race at Road America. Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway, unfortunately unlikely to hold a Cup race before the 2023 season at the earliest. Jennifer Jo Cobb is going to make her Cup Series debut with Rick Ware Racing at Talladega. She's going to be the first female since Danica Patrick in 2018 to race in the Cup Series. Special paint schemes for Richmond this weekend. Kyle Busch has M&M's Red Nose Day on the hood. Kevin Harvick has an Hot Brothers Pizza flow code barcode thing on it. Looks pretty cool. And Chase Briscoe with an orange machine for Global Mustang Week. Darlington land a sponsor for their May 9th Cup Series race. The Goodyear 400 is going to be the race name. Looks like a cool logo as well. A couple other throwbacks for Darlington. Tommy Joe Martin is going to be running a Rich Bickle throwback in the 44 car. Big Machine Racing is going to honor Dan Gurney in the 48. Really cool scheme there. JD Motorsports' Ryan Vargas is adding Maintenex for four additional races this season on the six car in the Xfinity Series. Ryan Reed is going to make a NASCAR return to the Truck Series this weekend with CMI Motorsports. Going to be good to see him back behind the wheel at the racetrack. Made in America flagpole maker Easy Pole going to sponsor Spencer Boyd in the Truck Series this weekend and this year. Brad Goss is going to make his truck debut also with CMI Motorsports at Coda in the 49 truck. And the Pete Store is returning as a primary sponsor with Todd Gillen this weekend at Richmond in Virginia. That's all we got for this week on Victory Lane 2.0. Episode 103 has come and gone. If you like what you heard here today, as always, party people, you know the drill. Leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud. Wherever you get your podcast, we should be available there for your consumption. Stefan asked me after we stopped recording if it's going to be on iTunes, Spotify, all those places. I was like, you know it is, brother. Of course. So he knows what to do. That means you should do it too. It only takes a couple minutes and it helps me out dramatically. It's not an ego boost. It helps me get more visibility with some NASCAR podcast listeners. So... Please do that if you have the time. I would be deeply appreciative of it. As I mentioned, check out my TikTok. I'm working hard on those. Hopefully it brings you guys some laughs, recapping the race that was in a minute or less every single week. I was filling in for Toby Christie on the Final Lap Weekly this week. Hopefully he feels better. And thanks to Kerry Murphy for having me on as a guest co-host. That's enough rambling for today, though. Enjoy the racing in Richmond this upcoming weekend. Stay safe, stay inside, keep washing those hands, social distance, wear a mask, get your vaccine, and I will catch y'all on the flip side.